The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. You turn in your copy of God's Word now to Job chapter 1. Job 1 will be in the first two chapters this morning as we continue this series, God is Great. And this is the fifth of six in the Old Testament that we'll take. And in this uh, series, next week will be in Isaiah 53, actually what John read just a moment ago. And then we'll be in some New Testament passages for the remainder of the year as we just take this theme of the greatness of God saying continually week after week, God is great. Great. That's right. That's right. And, and let me just say, weren't you so encouraged to the last several weeks if you were here with Will and Pastor Eric's messages in that series? Like they did such a fantastic job of reminding us of God's greatness through his promises and through his kingdom. And my soul was encouraged as I'm sure yours is as well. Now, uh, You know, when asked this question on how long it takes to write a sermon, a pastor once quipped to that, a lifetime. A lifetime. And there's some truth to that. You know, beyond the 10 to 20 hours a week or so that uh, I spend in in prep and, you know, different pastors vary in that. But the beyond the 10 to 20 hours of studying and uh, getting to the meaning of the passage and then bringing it to, uh, to real life and making applications and all that. Beyond that study in the week leading up to the message, there is an element of our whole life is invested into a message through classes that we've done and experiences that we've walked through and things that others have taught us along the way. And today's message in Job 1 and 2 is at least 11 years in the making for myself, probably longer in that Some of you uh, know this and know part of Aaron and I's story, but in October of 2010, my wife and I lost our firstborn daughter, Gwendolyn, after uh, 36 hours uh, in the NICU. She had a normal, my wife had a normal healthy pregnancy, and Gwendolyn lost her heartbeat during labor, and they did an emergency C-section, and and uh, uh, were able to revive her, but even that span of no heartbeat and oxygen uh, was just too much for her fragile body to bear. It was 36 hours, and you know, in those moments, the elation and expectation that comes to first-time parents, the hopes and dreams were in a matter of minutes taken away and really lay shattered upon the floor of our soul. And in the aftermath, those days and weeks and months, we turned to the scriptures for hope and help. We we had nowhere else to go. We knew that God was both sovereign and good. We We knew it. We believed it. We knew that God was great. So where does suffering fit in between there? How does our how do our trials and pain and Heard, how does it fit underneath God's good and sovereign hand? And it's when we came to the scriptures here that we met Job. A man who traveled the rugged road of suffering, maybe worse than any other human to walk the face of this earth. And so I want to just read to you a story. Maybe you uh, are familiar with it. Maybe you've never met it. Maybe you have avoided it because uh, you've heard the rumors about what it is about. 
but I just want to put it before us today. Yes, I'm going to read all two chapters of the text this morning. And so turn there, look, and follow along as I read Job's story. It begins this way. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East." His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I come, came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity 
although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we not receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven, And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. This is God's word for God's people. Would you just pray with me before we continue on? God in heaven, here we are, acknowledging our need for more of your spirit, to understand, to apply to make sense of these chapters, Lord. Thank you for this story. Thank you for the glimpse that we get into your character, your activity. Would you be near to us now? Help us as we listen. Help me as I preach. We we are poor and needy and need your help, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. These two chapters start with a brief description of Job's life, and then we have these alternating scenes between heaven's throne and Job's home that closes with Job's friends sitting sympathetically with him in silence. And so what are we to make of these two chapters? What are we to make of all of this? What's at the center of Job 1 and 2? Well, I hope you're taking notes, and I want you to write this down there in your notes or in your Bible, but here is what is at the center of this chapter. The glory of God is greater than my comfort. The glory of God is greater than my comfort. What these two chapters add to our understanding of God's uh, character, what these two chapters add to our life, what they contribute to the storyline of the scriptures is this central truth. The glory of God is greater than your comfort and my comfort. More important than our material and familial blessings. Above our pursuits of happiness is the glory of God. You know, we acknowledge this often around here. We acknowledge it corporately as a church. Every time we gather uh, for worship, we come to say that we are a 
vertical church. You heard John uh, say that this morning and probably every Sunday that you've been here as he has led. And that is the recognition that what we do, how we say here, why we serve, what motivates us to come together is to proclaim the glory of God. That's our aim. That's why we serve. That's why we preach. That's why we're here. The church is about the Lord. You acknowledge it personally. I hope in, in, in light of Colossians 3 that whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We acknowledge this, but where it is proven, church, where it is proven is in our discomfort. It's proven in our pain and our grief and the trials that we walk through, the suffering, both bodily and financially and familially, all, all these things, this is where it's proven out. And so Job 1 and 2 brings us to this place to ask this question that's just kind of hanging out there for us. Will I worship God when it hurts? Will I worship God when it hurts? And Job 1 and 2 lead us through answering that question, even in the opening scene, even before everything falls apart, even in the description of his blessed, prosperous, comfortable life. We get a glimpse into things that's not all right. There's a darkness that sin casts over the brightness of the description and the blessing here. And it teaches us this first point as we and to take the passage scene by scene. It teaches us this. Beware of trusting in your comforts. Beware of trusting in your comforts. Now, come to the text with me. Come back to chapter 1, verse 1. And, and let's just uh, explore this and examine it a little bit. You should know, as, you know to, when it comes to the book of Job, very little is actually known uh, about him and about what his name means and where these things are happening most scholars will place this in, the, in human history before the time of Abraham. And so before the time of, of Genesis 12, and that, the, those chapters, Genesis 1 through 11, it likely happened sometime in there. And really the way, reasons I, why we make that guess is because of the rudimentary nature of, of uh, Job's burnt offerings that he's, that he's making here, and also his lifespan. Now, we didn't read it, but if you were to go to the final chapter, Job 42, Job lives an additional 140 years. And so the length of life and the way that he worships makes us think that this was before Abraham came on the scene. We also don't know where the land of Uz is. You know, there's some that archaeologists make some uh, guess, but they're, they're really just kind of speculation. Now, it's not a make-believe place like the land of Oz, mind you, but we just are unsure. But what the author of Job takes pains for us to understand and what we do know is Job's character. Repeated even in this passage, right from the get-go, in the very first verse, is, uh, is the faithfulness and the integrity of Job is put out here. And then it, it comes up in heaven. It's not just that this was like his reputation in the workplace. This is his reputation in the throne room of heaven. All throughout Job, these four things are repeated. The author takes pains that we would know that Job is a blameless man, meaning that he is full of personal integrity. He is authentic and vulnerable. Now, don't confuse blameless in the Bible with the idea of perfection, as if he never sins at all, but he is full of personal integrity. And not only just personally so, but this idea of being upright means that he is also full of integrity in how he treats others. And in interactions with people, he is indeed upright in the business realm and in his family and things. But then we get these final two, that he fears God and turns away from evil. 
See, Job is a, a believer. He's a worshiper. He sought with his life to obey God. He was humble and reverent, fearing God, and he walked with God, and he lived out repentance. See, these two things paired together are what we see in the Old Testament. Someone who fears God and turns away from evil is what we would say in New Testament times after Jesus of someone who repents and believes. The right response to our knowledge of God, that God is holy, our sin has separated us from God, and Christ has come. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we were supposed to die as a consequence for our sins. And when the Spirit moves in us and our hearts are regenerate to believe that and our eyes are open, we respond to that by saying, I don't want to live that way. I turn from my sin. I'm no longer living the way that I once wanted to go, independent, selfish, full of myself. Rather, my faith is in the Lord. Believe that his way is right. So the author goes, we know his character, but also in the next verse, we know uh, without a doubt, we find out about Job's exorbitant prosperity. He is an extremely wealthy man, verse 3 shows us. He's like the Elon Musk of old. This guy has, he has all kinds of things, or Bill Gates, or whatever rich person you want. Like the summary statement, he was the greatest of all the people of the East. Financially speaking, he had it all. And not only did he have a, a vast herd of donkeys and sheep and oxen and camels, he also had a ton of kids, 10 of them to be exact. He was a blessed man. Not only did he have a lot of kids, but you get the sense that this was a fun family. They loved being together. Like everybody's birthday, they were constantly having a feast. They were spending time together. This, when does this happen? It's likely on their birthdays. They had these celebrations worth remembering, worth being recorded in inspired scripture. And it seems kind of idyllic, doesn't it? This is like a family and a job that we all dream of, don't we? A picture-perfect life. And yet in verse 5, we get this glimpse that not everything is... All as it seems. For here Job is making these presumptive burnt offerings. They would meet, they would have these feasts, and Job the next morning would rise up. And it was just like, just in case they have sinned, I am going to offer these offerings to the Lord in atonement for their sin. Now we could make some things out. This is Job a concerned and attentive dad? Is he leading his family spiritually? Well, no doubt. But especially because we know where the story takes us, there's something vertical, there's something greater going on in this verse. And it is a caution to us that we can take away about trusting in our comforts, in our prosperity, or our blessings for our happiness and security. See, how many of us have, have, have had these thoughts like, well, once I make this amount of money, once I have this job, then I will be set and secure. They're like, well, once I'm married or once I have kids, then my life will have meaning and purpose. Maybe you already have those things. You have the dream job. You have a, a, a full quiver of kids. You and your spouse have, uh, have a great marriage, and you're looking to them, though, for your meaning, your identity, your purpose, your security. So make no mistake, each of these is a blessing from the Lord, a gift from God. Blessings do not shield you from suffering. Prosperity does not make you immune to pain, trials, and grief. 
And so there's a glimpse here that we, we have to be aware of intentionally or even unintentionally trusting in our own comforts, in our prosperity to give us this meaning and comfort in life. The glory of God is much greater than any comfort, any security that our material or familial blessings can provide. Rather, rather we can't trust in them. Rather, here's where the next passage, uh, scene takes us in the passage. We must trust God's sovereign, protective hands. We must trust, rather, God's sovereign, protective hands, not in our own comforts. And so verse 6, there's like this massive uh, scene shift in the, in the storyline, isn't there? Now, instead of the description of Job's life, now we're just like ushered into heaven's throne room and we're told that there's this day, a day here where the sons of God, these non-human beings, likely uh, uh, angels here, and the accuser, literally, you know, it says Satan here, but there's a definite article, literally the accuser, the Satan is among them. And what we get here in this passage is like we get uh, all over the scripture where the Bible just really like cracks the window open into heaven. We don't get the full scene. Like, this is why we wait for heaven. We can't wait for when that window's just like thrown open and we step in and we can kind of understand it a little more. But what's happening here at this divine council? We're just like, the Lord is just like cracked the window open. We're like trying to peek in and see everything that's happening there. And so who are these people? What is going on in this? Well, because we only get a glimpse, we have to be very careful about making some definitive conclusions about what is here. But what it seems to be is some divine counsel of sorts. That these sons of God with the accuser among them are like these governing agents, if you will, under the sovereign hand of God that are doing God's bidding and carrying out his plans on the earth. They're not equals, they possess no authority. The scene makes it very clear, like the Lord is in charge and he is giving orders. They are taking orders. They're not giving him counsel. But it is the Lord who is sending them out, giving them orders, and the Satan is one of these agents working to oppose God's work. He's working to oppose him, and so God like, confronts him. He asks the questions, right? They're not coming. They're not giving counsel. They're not there to, uh, to question the Lord. Rather, God asks the questions, and he's like, Satan, where have you been, or where have you come from? And doesn't this kind of remind us back a few weeks to Genesis 3? After Adam and Eve had sinned, and the serpent's there, and, and God now comes and walks among you, he's like, uh, hey, where are you? Is that because God didn't know? No. Just asking the Question, giving them the opportunity to come clean, to, to confess where they've been. And he says, like we see all across the Bible, I've been prowling around the earth, walking to and fro. He repeats it again in chapter 2, and Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter 5, in a warning to believers that Satan is like a lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. And we're shocked here. We're shocked as it goes on. He asks where you've been. And then the Lord, in verse 8, offers up Job. We're shocked. I mean, it is the Lord who presses him forward. And he presents him based on his character. Those four things that we saw earlier in the chapter, that he's blameless, upright, fears God, and turns away from evil. But the Satan rebuffs the offer, doesn't he? He's like, no, 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 no. God, you protect him. You've given him all these material blessings. You've put this hedge of protection around him. We pray that sometimes, don't we? We're like, God, put an edge of protection around my kids. And he's like, I'm not going to go after him. You've blessed him. You've got your hand. I can't win against this. 
He's like, take all that blessing away and then see what Job does. I bet he will curse you to his face. And in verse 12, what happens? The Lord grants the Satan permission. And I don't know about you, but when I read this, I am, I, I am so shocked. Like, how does all this fit? How does this make sense? It's like shocking and confusing about what we believe about good and evil and God's sovereignty and, and the blessing that comes to, to those who follow the Lord. It, 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 it's just confusing. The more I study it, the more I get into this, the, you know, I think that our thinking has been corrupted about sin and about how God's works, about God's sovereignty in all of this. We, we're bent with this framework of thinking that some uh, goes something kind of like this. Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And underlying all of humanity from long ago in, in, in the time of Job to even today, I think this framework really guides how we uh, view the world. It's like a lens in which we see things here. And it's called many things in, in many different cultures. Karma picks up on this. We have like uh, uh, statements like what goes around comes around, right? Scholars, you know, the guys that are smarter than all of us in here combined, they call it the retributive justice framework. The attributive justice framework. And so what, what happens then, we can deduce then based on this thinking that when uh, something bad happens or calamity strikes, it must be because that person was bad or did something bad or evil. But if somebody is being blessed or is in a time of prosperity, then what can we deduce back? That they are good or have done good. And we don't have categories in our thinking that prosperity can be bad and calamity or pain or suffering can be good. We don't have categories for that, but the Lord does. The Lord has categories, even when we don't understand all the whys and all the hows, even when we are shocked and confused about why or how things are playing out. But what we do know as we get this cracked window into the heaven's throne is that we can trust God's sovereign, protective hand. He is the one who is orchestrating it all. He is the one who is in control. There is a plan for his glory and his good. What we know about his character is not somehow uh, diminished in the pain of our suffering. That even when it hurts, even when it is complex, even when it's the worst day ever, we can still trust his sovereign protective hands over us and we can still worship. We can still worship, which is at the center of these chapters. The glory of God is what leads us to worship, which is greater than our comfort. And Job believes this. Job believes this, and this is why we can save the bulk of the passage that we are to worship God as the good giver. And so what happens here, the, the scene then shifts back down to earth, out of heaven's throne, now into Job's home here. And, and, and you know, this, I think this day here in these verses probably hold the title for any one single human as worst day ever. And, and I don't say that to, you know, to somehow be callous towards days that you've had that are really bad or a season and, and that you're walking through trial and suffering and grief right now. I don't say that to diminish it, but this, this is something else. 
It's like in systematic fashion, all the prosperity from the opening verses are tragically taken away. Like just like all those cattle, all those things, all the, those exorbitant numbers in the wealth, they're just like one after another, just, just taken. First, the 500 oxen, the 500 donkeys, those servants, they're slaughtered in a terrorist attack by the Sabaeans. One survives to tell. And before that guy has even turned around and headed out the door, he's, uh, somebody else enters in and says, hey, 7,000 sheep and your servants have been decimated in a horrific lightning storm. One person survives to tell. And again, before he's out the door, somebody else is rushing in to tell him, hey, your 3,000 camels have been stolen and your servants struck down in this coordinated three-way attack by the Chaldeans. And I alone have survived to tell you. And before even that man is out the door, and Job even has time to process the astronomical financial losses, his economic personal ruin. Before he can even process all of that, somebody else walks in and tragedy hits home. A tornado has taken all 10 of his kids while they sat together with over a meal. One survives to tell verse 20, Job does what any person would do on a day like this. He grieves. He laments. Brings himself to the Lord. He tears his outer robe, the symbol of a broken heart. He shaves his, his head, the symbol of losing everything, that he has been stripped bare. But then he does what... Any person who is held by the Lord, any person trusting the sovereign, protective, good hand of God can, can, can do. He worships. He believes that the glory of God is greater than his comfort and he worships the good giver. He acknowledges his barren neediness. I, I, naked I came and naked I'm going away. But he also acknowledges the generosity of God to both give and take away. Even in this, he blesses the name of the Lord. Somehow God is good in this, and he does the exact opposite of what the Satan said he would do. He blesses the name of the Lord instead of curses God to his face. And so here's the thing, like chapter one ends, and he worships, and then everything gets better. He keeps his integrity and then God gives it all back to him right away. That isn't what happens, is it? It gets worse, much worse, intensely worse. It's like these chapters are just taking an ax to that whole retributive justice framework and, and, and totally smashing down the simplicity of our thinking in that way and making it just bringing us back to the Lord in all of this. In, in chapter 2, then the scene shifts back to heaven's throne. And here we learn the Satan's real motive. He wants to destroy Job. He is not just satisfied in taking away all the blessings, all the gifts from the Lord. He's going after him personally now. He, he wants to go, he's like, God, no, you remove your hand. Let me strike him and then we'll see what happens. In chapter two, it's a rep repetition, like I said, of many of the same things. And in chapter one, giving us indication that God's sovereign uh, protective hand is still at work here. But the whole conversation is shocking and confusing 
I get it. Verse 3, the Lord singles out Job again. Have you considered Job? It's like, yeah, yes. And I don't know about you, but I read this passage and I just want to scream at the Lord. Like, just relent, Lord. Give the man a break. This is too much for him. It's too much. You know, I've, 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 I've prayed that way for many of you in this room. Things that you're walking through. Like, Lord, ease up. But the Lord doesn't, does he? God has something greater in mind. Something greater for his glory. Something greater in mind for Job. Something greater than his material comforts. Something greater than his own his bodily health. Something greater for us in store as this story would be recorded and preserved and inspired scripture for thousands of years. He has something greater in mind. So it plays out. The Satan strikes Job with full body sores. Like there's not a square inch of his body that isn't in misery. And so he has to go out from his home. He's, it says he's sitting in ashes. He's, he's outside the city limits in the trash heap where the trash is burning. And he is sitting there and he's taking a piece of pottery, the pottery that's been shattered around him. And he takes a piece and he's just scraping at the oozing, nasty, loathsome sores to try to get some physical relief. Wife can't take it anymore. You know, she's you know, like, how can you still have faith? How can you do this? Just curse God and be done with all of this. And even in this, Job is still upright. He maintains his integrity. He's gracious towards his wife. He doesn't call her foolish. The wording there is very important. He doesn't say, you, you, you speak as a fool. He says, you speak like them. He's being very gracious to her. He's pointing her back to the Lord, his goodness, his generosity. And in all this, he doesn't send the author. He repeats that there at the, in, in verse 10 and back in chapter 1 and 22 and throughout the book. to make sure we know like Job is not misleading us in his response to the Lord. Shall we not receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? You know, and just pastorally speaking, I don't think we can be too hard on the wife in this passage. Grief makes us say all kinds of foolish things, don't they? Things that we don't actually mean, things that we later regret. And here's the reality. The next 30 plus chapters of Job is evidence to that. As his friends will start to speak and, and they'll, they'll just go back and forth on, on, on motives and back and forth and examining this uh, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, how this all plays out. It, it's, it's all like that. And so is Job some, like, superhero believer? Like, how does he do this? How does he worship God as the good giver when his life is miserable? He's got nothing. How do we, how do, how do, how do, how do we respond with worship? How do we trust God? How do we beware of all these things? I think it starts with a right belief in the character of God. First and foremost, we must believe that God is holy and sovereign and good. Always, he alone is worthy to be worshipped no matter what is happening in our life. 
And our experiences don't change that. The things that happen here on earth do not change the character of God. And we must be resolute in a belief with that. But we must also have a right understanding then of the works of God. See, we have to put away those unbiblical notions that God won't give us more than we can handle. This is more than Job can handle. It's more than any of us can handle. The reason that God can allow this, he can single out Job, is because he holds Job. And he also holds the Satan. We must also put away these right understandings about the works of God. We have to put away this just simplified, unbiblical notion of the retributive justice framework, or that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. God is way more complex. Our world is way more complex than that. Suffering and grief, way more complex. We must also have right expectations about following God. See, suffering is normal, church. And not only is it normal, it is also for our good. It's for our good. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised by this. Peter would write this later to his readers uh, after himself being sifted like Job. In Luke 22, Jesus tells Peter, and, and really I think is applying to the whole uh, apostles, that whole band there, but he said, hey, Satan's demanded to sift you like wheat. He doesn't say, but I've stopped him. I've taken away. No, I'm going to pray for you. It's Jesus' intercessory prayer right now, even for us, even in the midst of your suffering, that is going to keep you. Even when we can't make sense about this. But don't be surprised. Peter told him, hey, do not be surprised at the fire trials when it comes upon you. See, when we don't expect it, maybe you've never walked through a time of intense grief. And praise God for that. But don't be surprised when it does happen to you. It's normal. It's right. It means that you're a Christian. It means that God is, 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 loves you. And, and even in saying that, here's, here's the thing. We have to have the right receptiveness to the purposes of God. Why does he do this? Why does he allow all these things? Well, see, suffering is a gift, Paul would tell us later. You, you may recall back to that in Philippians chapter 1 where Paul says, For it's been granted or gifted you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. And we love the first half of that, right? Our salvation is a free gift from God. We want a big old helping of that. He also says, but to suffer. Suffering is a gift from God. Why? Because it produces endurance and character and hope in us. This is where it is proven out, where as we walk through this, it is God working in us a steadfastness of faith that will not give up. That even when it hurts, even when we don't understand, even so, we will still worship God. We will not give up. And that is what produces this galvanizing character in our life. The same kind of character that Job exhibits here. And it leads us then to a greater hope, a hope of eternal life with Christ, a hope uh, for uh, better days ahead. See, this is how suffering is gifted. Also, it points us to eternity. We can get so fixated on our prosperity and our blessing here. And then so shipwrecked when suffering happens that we can't move on. And yet in suffering, it is God's merciful, good, sovereign hand to point us to eternity. That this momentary light affliction is preparing in us an eternal weight of glory. 
So what do we do? We look to the things that are unseen and not to the things that are seen. We look to the one who is unseen, the one who is in control. It's a gift because it proves the resilience of faith. You're doubting your salvation? If you're suffering and you're trusting Christ, doubt it no more. Unbelievers abandon the faith. Unbelievers abandon. Unbelievers walk away. The sun comes up when the, when the scorching heat gets hot and wilts away. But it proves the resiliency. It purifies our faith. It makes us more and more like Christ. Where the things that are temporary no longer have the satisfactory effect like Christ does. See, when you're brought to a place like Job where there is nothing left, where you have zero control, where you are at the mercy of others, mercy of God, you realize that Christ, following Christ, is worth it all. That His glory is greater than our comforts. And so make no mistake about this, church. As we think about how does this all fit, how do we worship God, make no mistake about this. God gives suffering to prove the strength of His faithfulness, not to test ours. Not to test our faithfulness. Ah, I'm going to trap this, this, this guy and I'm going to give him this sickness or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test this woman and I'm going to take this away from her and now I'm going to see if she'll really follow me. Which is not the kind, benevolent, good and gracious God that we follow. These things are taken away so we see that Christ is worth it. That his faithfulness to the end, he is the one who keeps us in everything. He carries us. He gives faith. He gives prosperity. He gives calamity. And see, when, when Job, here's we come back to the text here, when Job is everything taken away, he isn't like clamoring to get it all back. He isn't like isolated himself to now like start scheming for how he's going to rebuild his, you know, his, his financial empire. He's going to uh, start over with his family. No. He knows that the greatness he once had was not something to be grasped. But he humbled himself and exalted God in worship. I'm so thankful one commentator pointed that, to, pointed that out to me in, uh, in, in an example of Christ. That the one Christ who sat at heaven's throne knew all these things. He did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but rather he came to earth. He put on human flesh, lived the life that we were supposed to live, took on our suffering, humbled himself, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's Philippians 2. See, Job points us to Christ. He's the one to whom we worship. He's the, where we go when we find ourselves in pain. It, it is to Christ. He's the one who knows suffering himself. It's in him that we can take comfort. We can find comfort in his people as well. And this is where the chapter ends. We, we find comfort in God's people. Why God, the glory of God is greater than our comforts. Well, where do we find then comfort in the pain? We find it in God's people. And now this isn't just some like abstract principle. 
Like, oh, God comforts me. He's near to us. No, but it's physically demonstrated by the people of God. We are his hands and feet. And so Job has these three friends here who's got some crazy names, but they come near to show sympathy and to comfort him. They give him the ministry of presence. They come near. They make themselves available. Even in his great grief. Even when he's like unrecognizable in his pain. Best counsel they give is the the week-long silence. Conversations will come, but for now, just silence. And you know what? In times of crisis, God's people rally around one another. This is what we do. We rejoice with those who rejoice, and we mourn with those who mourn. So what what do we do? If we find ourselves in a time of suffering, we embrace it as a gift. We cultivate it in times when we are in times of prosperity. We, we, we cultivate these relationships and we walk with one another in a biblical manner so that when life gets hard, we embrace the comfort that God gives through his people. And in turn, when somebody around us is, we give it as a, a gift. We come near, we offer sympathy. Is it messy? Absolutely. People say untimely, hurtful, offensive, even untrue things. It's worth it. Thankfully, God has given us the tools that we need to overlook offenses and to love one another and to forgive one another and all that. But see, God's people need God's community, especially when it's hard. Especially when it's hard. And see, then the comfort that we find in community actually glorifies God. As we are doing what God has called us to do, this glorifies God. And the help that we give in community, this too glorifies God. And which is what we're after, isn't it? To glorify God in all that we think, say, and do. To be vertical people, to be a vertical church, the glory of God, which is far greater, giving it to Him, worshiping Him even when it hurts. And so will you, church, The question still lingers and hangs out there, whether you're in a time now or you're just banking it for later and making these investments even now. So when the deposits are taken or you're making the deposits, so when you get a bank. Sorry. Will we worship God when it hurts? By the grace of God, Job did. And by the grace of God, we can too. We can too. God is, God is great. We say it continually, even, even when it hurts. It's, just not, it's not just in times of blessing, but God is great, but we are poor and needy. He is our help and our deliverer. And so what I want us to do in just response to this now, knowing that some of you may be walking through these things, is I want us to just give us some time to pray. I'll pray for you, and you can add your prayers, and then we'll sing a new song that uh, will lead us to worship in the same way I think that Job worshiped. And so would you just bow your heads and let's pray even now. God in heaven, here we are. Here we are, and we just begin by confessing as we don't understand everything, even though you've given us this glimpse into uh, your throne room. We don't understand it all, but here we are, God, thanking you just for the glimpse Here we are asking you to help us understand even more. But beyond understanding, God, we're asking that you would just help us to trust you more. God, would you 
Just like the, in, in, in the Gospels, would you, uh, Lord, we, we just confess, we say, we believe, but help our unbelief. Lord, we, uh, come uh, with the just confessing that we don't understand it all. We're fickle. We, we're, we're, we easily fall into uh, to sin. We easily fall into temptation. We easily try to make sense of everything. And I'm just here to tell you that we, we don't. Help us, Lord. We want to. We want to trust you rightly. We want to understand truly. Lord, we're also here asking that you would be near. You promised comfort. You promised to be near to the brokenhearted. You promised to bind up our wounds. You told us you'll never leave us or forsake us. We're taking you at your word in, those, in that way. And so for those among us who are suffering today and who are, uh, who are grieving, who are walking through sickness or loss, hardship would you be near and would you use your people today to give comfort pray these things now in Christ's name